The 17th Amendment to the United States Constitution established the direct election of United States Senators in each state. The amendment supersedes Article I, Section 3, Clauses 1 and 2 of the Constitution, under which Senators were elected by state legislatures. It also alters the procedure for filling vacancies in the Senate, allowing for state legislatures to permit their governors to make temporary appointments until a special election can be held. The amendment was proposed by the 62nd Congress in 1912 and became part of the Constitution on April 8, 1913, on ratification by three-quarters, 36, of the state legislatures. Sitting senators were not affected until their existing terms expired. The transition began with two special elections in Georgia and Maryland, then in earnest with the November 1914 election. It was complete on March 4, 1919, when the senators chosen at the November 1918 election took office. Text. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, elected by the people thereof, for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. The electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislatures. When vacancies happen in the representation of any state in the Senate, the executive authority of such state shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies, provided, that the legislature of any state may empower the executive thereof to make temporary appointments until the people fill the vacancies by election as the legislature may direct. This amendment shall not be so construed as to affect the election or term of any senator chosen before it becomes valid as part of the Constitution. Background. Original Composition. Originally, under Article I, Section 3, Clauses 1 and 2 of the Constitution, each state legislature elected its state senators for a six-year term. Each state, regardless of size, is entitled to two senators as part of the Connecticut Compromise between the small and large states. This contrasted with the House of Representatives, a body elected by popular vote, and was described as an uncontroversial decision. At the time, James Wilson was the sole advocate of popularly electing the Senate, but his proposal was defeated 10 to 1. There were many advantages to the original method of electing senators. Prior to the Constitution, a federal body was one where states effectively formed nothing more than permanent treaties, with citizens retaining their loyalty to their original state. However, under the new Constitution, the federal government was granted substantially more power than before. Having the state legislatures elect the senators reassured anti-federalists that there would be some protection against the federal government swallowing up states and their powers, and providing a check on the power of the federal government. Additionally, the longer terms and avoidance of popular election turned the Senate into a body that could counter the populism of the House. While the representatives operated in a two-year direct election cycle, making them frequently accountable to their constituents, the senators could afford to take a more detached view of issues coming before Congress. State legislatures retained the theoretical right to instruct their senators to vote for or against proposals, thus giving the states both direct and indirect representation in the federal government. The Senate was part of a formal bicameralism, with the members of the Senate and House responsible to completely distinct constituencies, this helped defeat the problem of the federal government being subject to special interests. Members of the Constitutional Convention considered the Senate to be parallel to the British House of Lords as an upper house, containing the better men of society, but improved upon as they would be conscientiously chosen by the upper houses of state legislatures for fixed terms, and not merely inherited for life as in the British system, subject to a monarch's arbitrary expansion. It was hoped they would provide abler deliberation and greater stability than the House of Representatives due to the Senator's status. Issues. According to Judge J. Bybee of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, those in favor of popular elections for Senators believe two primary problems were caused by the original provisions, legislative corruption and electoral deadlocks. There was a sense that senatorial elections were bought and sold, 
changing hands for favors and sums of money rather than because of the competence of the candidate. Between 1857 and 1900, the Senate investigated three elections over corruption. In 1900, for example, William A. Clark had his election voided after the Senate concluded that he had bought votes in the Montana legislature. But analysts Bybee and Todd Zawicki believe this concern was largely unfounded, there was a dearth of hard information on the subject. In more than a century of legislative elections of U.S. Senators, only 10 cases were contested for allegations of impropriety. Electoral deadlocks were another issue. Because state legislatures were charged with deciding whom to appoint as senators, the system relied on their ability to agree. Some states could not, and thus delayed sending senators to Congress. In a few cases, the system broke down to the point where states completely lacked representation in the Senate. Deadlocks started to become an issue in the 1850s, with a deadlocked Indiana legislature allowing a Senate seat to sit vacant for two years. The tipping point came in 1865 with the election of John P. Stockton, DNJ, which happened after the New Jersey legislature changed its rules regarding the definition of a quorum. Clarification needed in 1866, Congress acted to standardize a two-step process for Senate elections. In the first step, each chamber of the state legislature would meet separately to vote. The following day, the chambers would meet in joint assembly to assess the results, and if a majority in both chambers had voted for the same person, he would be elected. If not, the joint assembly would vote for a senator, with each member receiving a vote. If no person received a majority, the joint assembly was required to keep convening every day to take at least one vote until a senator was elected. Nevertheless, between 1891 and 1905, 46 elections were deadlocked across 20 states. In one extreme example, a Senate seat for Delaware went unfilled from 1899 until 1903. The business of holding elections also caused great disruption in the state legislatures, with a full third of the Oregon House of Representatives choosing not to swear the oath of office in 1897 due to a dispute over an open Senate seat. The result was that Oregon's legislature was unable to pass legislation that year. Zwicky again argues that this was not a serious issue. Deadlocks were a problem, but they were the exception rather than the norm. Many legislatures did not deadlock over elections at all. Most of those that did in the 19th century were the newly admitted Western states, which suffered from inexperienced legislatures and weak party discipline. As Western legislatures gained experience, deadlocks became less frequent. While Utah suffered from deadlocks in 1897 and 1899, they became what Zawicki refers to as a good teaching experience, and Utah never again failed to elect senators. Another concern was that when deadlocks occurred, state legislatures were unable to conduct their other normal business. James Christian Ure, writing in the South Texas Law Review, notes that this did not in fact occur. In a deadlock situation, state legislatures would deal with the matter by holding one vote at the beginning of the day, then the legislators would continue with their normal affairs. Eventually, Legislative elections held in a state's Senate election years were perceived to have become so dominated by the business of picking senators that the state's choice for senator distracted the electorate from all other pertinent issues. Senator John H. Mitchell noted that the Senate became the vital issue in all legislative campaigns, with the policy stances and qualifications of state legislative candidates ignored by voters who were more interested in the indirect Senate election. To remedy this, some state legislatures created advisory elections that served as de facto general elections, allowing legislative campaigns to focus on local issues. Calls for reform. Calls for a constitutional amendment regarding Senate elections started in the early 19th century, with Henry R. Storrs in 1826 proposing an amendment to provide for popular election. Similar amendments were introduced in 1829 and 1855, with the most prominent proponent being Andrew Johnson, who raised the issue in 1868 and considered the idea's merits so palpable that no additional explanation was necessary.
As noted above, in the 1860s, there was a major congressional dispute over the issue, with the House and Senate voting to veto the appointment of John P. Stockton to the Senate due to his approval by a plurality of the New Jersey legislature rather than a majority. In reaction, the Congress passed a bill in July 1866 that required state legislatures to elect senators by an absolute majority. By the 1890s, support for the introduction of direct election for the Senate had substantially increased, and reformers worked on two fronts. On the first front, the Populist Party incorporated the direct election of senators into its Omaha platform, adopted in 1892. In 1908, Oregon passed the first law basing the selection of U.S. senators on a popular vote. Oregon was soon followed by Nebraska. Proponents for popular election noted that 10 states already had non-binding primaries for Senate candidates, in which the candidates would be voted on by the public, effectively serving as advisory referenda instructing state legislatures how to vote. Reformers campaigned for more states to introduce a similar method. William Randolph Hearst opened a nationwide popular readership for direct election of U.S. Senators in a 1906 series of articles using flamboyant language attacking the treason of the Senate in his Cosmopolitan magazine. David Graham Phillips, one of the yellow journalists whom President Teddy Roosevelt called muckrakers, described Nelson Aldrich of Rhode Island as the principal traitor among the scurvy lot in control of the Senate by theft, perjury, and bribes corrupting the state legislatures to gain election to the Senate. A few state legislatures began to petition the Congress for direct election of senators. By 1893, the House had the two-thirds vote for just such an amendment. However, when the joint resolution reached the Senate, it failed from neglect, as it did again in 1900, 1904 and 1908, each time the House approved the appropriate resolution, and each time it died in the Senate. On the second national legislative front, reformers worked toward a constitutional amendment, which was strongly supported in the House of Representatives but initially opposed by the Senate. Bybee notes that the state legislatures, which would lose power if the reforms went through, were supportive of the campaign. By 1910, 31 state legislatures had passed resolutions calling for a constitutional amendment allowing direct election, and in the same year 10 Republican senators who were opposed to reform were forced out of their seats, acting as a wake-up call to the Senate. Reformers included William Jennings Bryan, while opponents counted respected figures such as Elihu Root and George Frisbee Hoare among their number. Root cared so strongly about the issue that after the passage of the 17th Amendment he refused to stand for re-election to the Senate. Bryan and the reformers argued for popular election through highlighting flaws they saw within the existing system, specifically corruption and electoral deadlocks, and through arousing populist sentiment. Most important was the populist argument, that there was a need to awaken, in the senators, a more acute sense of responsibility to the people, which it was felt they lacked. Election through state legislatures was seen as an anachronism that was out of step with the wishes of the American people, and one that had led to the Senate becoming a sort of aristocratic body, too far removed from the people beyond their reach, and with no special interest in their welfare. The settlement of the West and continuing absorption of hundreds of thousands of immigrants expanded the sense of the people. Hoare replied that the people were both a less permanent and a less trusted body than state legislatures, and moving the responsibility for the election of senators to them would see it passing into the hands of a body that, but a day before changing. Other counterarguments were that renowned senators could not have been elected directly and that, since a large number of senators had experience in the House, which was already directly elected, a constitutional amendment would be pointless. The reform was considered by opponents to threaten the rights and independence of the states, who were sovereign, entitled, to have a separate branch of Congress, to which they could send their ambassadors. This was countered by the argument that a change in the mode in which senators were elected would not change their responsibilities. The Senate freshman class of 1910 brought new hope to the reformers. 
14 of the 30 newly elected senators had been elected through party primaries, which amounted to popular choice in their states. More than half of the states had some form of primary selection for the Senate. The Senate finally joined the House to submit the 17th Amendment to the states for ratification, nearly 90 years after it first was presented to the Senate in 1826. By 1912, 239 political parties at both the state and national level had pledged some form of direct election, and 33 states had introduced the use of direct primaries. 27 states had called for a constitutional convention on the subject, with 31 states needed to reach the threshold. Arizona and New Mexico each achieved statehood that year, bringing the total number of states to 48, and were expected to support the motion. Alabama and Wyoming, already states, had passed resolutions in favor of a convention without formally calling for one. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.